0: Romans chapter 9, and uh, we'll be focusing primarily on verses 25 through 33 this morning. Now, as we look and, and, and try to understand what's taking place in this chapter as a whole, you see that, that Paul begins this chapter by saying that he's telling the truth, he's not lying, His conscience is bearing witness in the Holy Spirit that, that he has great sorrow and continual grief in his heart, and that he could wish that he himself were a curse from Christ for the brethren, the Israelites. He loves them. He begins this chapter by just laying out so clearly his love for the Israelites, his love for those who. Have been given God's word, had been given the blessings of the prophets, had been given the blessings of the covenants, and yet they had totally and completely rejected Christ. And so he begins the chapter by by saying that that if it was possible to give up his salvation so that they might be saved, he would do it, knowing that that's not a possibility. But he goes on from there to explain that it's, it's not that God's word, though, has taken no effect. There's those that could have looked, and, and, and you're looking at a church that is primarily Gentile. And you think of all of the promises that had been given in Scripture, and all of these things that were pointing to Christ who was to come, where you look at it, and it just gives incredible detail of the crucifixion, detail of where he would be born, detail of how he would live, detail of what would take place and, and, and the exact time that certain things would take place. Just hundreds and hundreds of prophecies that would be given. And, and then to look at the congregation, to see that the vast majority of the people that are in the congregation are Gentiles and not those who were Jews, who were known as the people of God, who had rejected Christ and wanted nothing to do with the gospel. Paul's looking at this congregation and says, it's not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are Israel. It's not that God's word has taken no effect, but not all of Israel is Israel. Not all that would call themselves, we are the people of God. Paul's saying not all of them are truly the people of God. And then he begins to just go through and create arguments as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to say, Examples of, of Jacob and, and Esau are examples of Isaac and, and Ishmael. and Going through and just looking and saying they, they came from the same families and yet not all of Israel is Israel. Not all of them were saved. Because for those that would have been hearing these things as as Jews, they would have been looking at these things saying, we are okay. We're okay. We're okay because... Our father is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We're okay. We don't need to, to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved. If anybody in this earth is saved, it's us. We keep the law. We've been circumcised. We have the prophets. And yet they hated Christ. They wanted nothing to do with Christ. And so he's, he's writing these things to such an audience knowing that there's those that would look and say, but what about the promises that God gave to Israel? Did he not fulfill his promises to them? What about all of those that would be saved? Has he not fulfilled those promises? And so we come to the text that we find this morning in light of that. Beginning in verse 24, he says this. Um, I'm sorry, let's, let's be... Beginning in verse 22. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles, God has shown the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. And Paul is saying, that's us. It's us. It's even us whom he's called. Us whom he's called that we're we're vessels of mercy. God has shown us his grace. He's shown us the glory of his riches in us as he has saved us. Even us, not only Jews, but also the Gentiles. And then in verse 25, he says, and he says also to Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. And so Paul gives an example. He's continuing on and saying, think of Hosea. Continuing on with that idea of not all of Israel is Israel. He says, think of Hosea. In Hosea, God says, I'll call them my people who were not my people. Um, let's talk just briefly, remind you of the story of Hosea. You remember in, in, the, in the beginning of the book of Hosea that God calls this man, Hosea, to, to go and to take for himself a wife of, of harlotry. God is going to work in the life of of, of this man and to teach the nation of Israel through this man by saying to him, go and take for yourself a wife, a wife who is a harlot. Children and children of of harlotry. For the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So, So Hosea went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. Take for yourself a wife of harlotry. I want you to see that my people, God says, have committed great harlotry by departing from me. So he calls Hosea to do this. And she has children, and each of the children are given names that specifically deal with, with God's judgment upon his people. Given names, Jezreel, meaning he has scattered the people. But one specific name that's important for us in, in, in light of this text is she has a, a son named lo Ruhamah and, and his, his name means not my, my people. Um, God says, call his name Lo-Ami for you are not my people and I will not be your God. You're not my people. He says, you have departed from me. You've committed harlotry against me. You're you're not my people. So he's bringing the people of Israel to remember Hosea. Remember when God said, you're not my people. You've played the harlot. Given a, a son that is given specifically that name. And then verse 26 says, and it shall come to pass in that place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. And we look at the story as the story goes on where in Hosea chapter 2, you see Hosea whose, whose wife is a, is a harlot and he goes out to find her. He goes out to draw her to himself. He says things like, behold, I'll allure her. I'll bring her into the wilderness. I'll speak comfort to her. I'll give her her vineyards from there. In the valley of Acre, as a door of hope, she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. And God's giving us a picture of Israel saying, she has played the harlot, but I'm going to go after her. I'm going to go after her. I'll speak kindly to her. I'll draw her to myself. In Hosea 2:19 he says, he says, "I'll betroth you to me forever. Yes, I'll betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I'll betroth you to me in faithfulness and I'll sh- and you shall know the Lord." And in verse 23 he says, "Then I'll I'll sow her for myself in the earth, and I'll have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. And I'll say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. This is just this incredible story of God's love for his people. Those that were not his people. And he says, now I will make you my people again. In Hosea 3 and verse 1, it says that the Lord said to Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel. Go, go love her again. She's with another man right now. Go love her again. She's committing adultery, but go love her again, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel. Look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. So you see Hosea where he's called by God to go love Gomer again. And he goes and he finds her. And she's being auctioned off as a slave. Here's this woman who surely could be put to death. But he goes and it says, So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half dollars homers of barley and I said to her you shall stay with me many days and you shall not play the harlot nor shall you have a man so too I will be towards you and God just says this is a picture of me towards my people his point is though in bringing this up is that there was a time where they were not my people there was a time where Israel will look and say hey just because we are of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob we're okay and God's saying through the book of Romans here no you're not okay In those times where you were not in obedience and you were going after other gods and you were playing the harlot, I said, you are not my people. But I gave this picture that was there, God says, of Hosea and and how he went after Gomer and he purchased her. In the same way, I've purchased you. In the same way, I've purchased you just as Christ has purchased us as he hung on the cross. And now you are my people. I I read this and it brings my heart to a place of just loving him. And I think of the character of our God, the grace of our God, the mercy of our God that takes takes a man like Hosea and says marry this harlot because I I just I want you to be able to show the nation my love for you now go go purchase her when when she's with another man and then tell her that you will love her forever tell her that she is to be a wife to you and that you're going to be a husband to her And you look and you just see the heart of God towards his people. A love that is not based upon the fact that his people deserved it. Gomer's love that she received was not based upon the fact that she was worthy of it when she was purchased for 15 shekels of silver. One and a half homers of barley. It wasn't that she was worthy of it. It was all... Of grace. It was to show that this is something that was all completely of grace. And I look at this and I just think the great love in which he's loved us. In verse 26 in Romans chapter 9, it goes on and says, And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there you shall be called the sons of the living God. And then in verse 27 it says, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea the remnant will be saved though the number of the children of Israel will be as the sand of the sea he takes them back to prophecies by Isaiah from the words of God from the prophet Isaiah saying even though the number of children of Israel were as the sand of the sea there was only a remnant that were saved There was only a remnant. And there is a remnant that continues to be saved today. You look and you see it from the very beginning. Adam and Eve sinned. They have Cain and they have Abel. Cain kills Abel. And you look at it and and Genesis 4.25 says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth, saying, For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And it tells us when Seth was born, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. The seed was to come. Cain killed Abel, and so God says, now I'll give you Seth. People began to call upon the name of the Lord. You see it continue on with Enoch. You see Noah. Genesis 6, 8, where it says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I mean, the the whole entire world was doing whatever was right in their own eyes and desired nothing to do with the creator of the universe. And God takes Noah and his family, destroys the entire earth. But there is a remnant. There is a remnant that is there. There is the seed that is to come that is going to bring forth Christ who would come. This remnant of God's people that would endure. And you look and and it tells us, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You see it with Abram, where Abram's living in a way that's totally against God. And God goes to him and says, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I'll show you. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then you see the same promise go to Isaac, and you see the same promise go to, to, to Jacob. And you look at it, and you see God continuing this remnant through I think of what God did with his people in Israel. If you if you look with me at Romans chapter eleven, just turn a few pages there to Romans chapter eleven, verse verse one. He says, I'll say then God has has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I alone am left and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I've reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. And you look at this, and God says, you're not alone. There's 7,000 more. There's a remnant. This present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. There is a remnant that is there. And the remnant continues. We are a part of that. The church. You think of how you got saved. I think of my my family. I the you know, Tsuji's came to the United States from Japan on, on I think february fourteenth of 1914. So this next February will be 100 years since the Otsuji's came. And and I think of what the other Otsuji's would have been doing in Japan. God, God bringing them here. I remember visiting my, what, you would refer to as your grandma, uh, like as Japanese as I am, as I look Japanese and I like sushi. So I don't, like, don't judge me, George, if I get this wrong or other Japanese people who are here. But we would refer to our grandma as bachan. And, and I remember her hunched up a little back. She lived to be early 90s and going to visit her at a convalescent home. And here's this. The little lady, she, she didn't speak English, barely, just, just barely. And, and she got sent off to the, the camps of World War II. But God saved her. She had her Bible there. She would just read her Bible every day. The impact that she had on my dad and, and the rest of the family. And you just look and you see God doing a work. My mom, coming from a family that was, both parents were orphaned in Kansas, coming out here, my parents meeting, God saving them, them raising us in the ways of the Lord. And every one of us has a testimony of how God did that, how God saved us. And you think, how did it happen? How did it all How did it all happen? And then you read passages like John 10, 16, where Jesus says, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. There's other sheep that are not yet of this fold. They must hear my voice, and they will follow me. And you look at it, and you just see the work of the Holy Spirit on our life as he draws us unto himself and accomplishing that, he, he tells us in, in 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. And it's referring to all of us who are here as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. God did that in us. He's called us to salvation. We're the remnant Think of some of the places that I've gone to, like, like Burma, and, and going to a place like like Burma and and seeing that, that that there was just this whole people group there that did not believe in Christ. God moves upon the heart of a guy named Adair and Judson to go and to specifically go into Burma and to. Suffer in terrible ways, and yet you see there a church that exists to this day. I just think of the the praises, of the, the, these sweet, sweet people turning the air conditioner on and, and singing quietly so that nobody could hear them singing. And you look and you just think, there's a remnant there. Going to a place like Pakistan, where it's just it's almost all Muslim, and yet you see these. Christians who have to write on their their identification card that they are a Christian and they can't get jobs and they can't eat at regular restaurants. And and you look at the persecution that they experience and oh, and the, the sweetness of just seeing their faces. Girls on this side, boys on this side, or women and men, and they never sit with each other. In fact, they told me, when you teach, you need to look at the men. Not the women, look at the men lest I be stumbled. And, and they have these, these rules, but just, I didn't know that until I was almost done teaching. So I watched all of their faces in the midst of my teaching. And it was, it was, it was amazing just to see Christ in them. There, there's just no doubt. You know what I'm talking about when you meet a believer? You, you just see Christ in them. Uh, little places in the middle of nowhere where you see it. You, you see it in China where the gospel has just flourished and you meet people and there's this unity that is there immediately. Wherever it is that you go, you you see it. You see God saving his people. Think of going to Romania in the early 90s and, and just hearing the, the praises of the people. They would sing the songs in in English and then in Romanian and they would switch off and just some of the sweetest times of praise were those times, weren't they? And there's a remnant. So God tells us in this passage that there is a remnant. He goes on. And he tells us in verse 28, for he will finish for he will finish the work And cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a a short work upon the earth. Or as the ESV says, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. He goes back to another prophecy from Isaiah saying in verse 29. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. He goes back again to Isaiah and says, unless God had left us a seed, we would have been just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Unless God had left a remnant, we would have been just like them. You think of the nation of Israel. They would have heard something like that and just thought, how could you say something like that? We're Israel. We're God's people. We have the commandments. We make the sacrifices. We go to the temple. We do all of these things. How could you say something like that? And yet what Paul's doing all throughout this book is having Scripture be a commentary on Scripture. You you look at it, there's... Things that we look at in the book of Romans in chapter 9 where it's, it's, it's a weighty thing where you, you read it and you say, what, what does this mean? And you look and he just gives scripture to say, and here is what I mean by it. Look at the word of God. This is what he says. And so he's talking about this and he just says, think of, think of the people of Israel. Unless God, if God had not left us a seed, we would have been just like Sodom and Gomorrah. You think of Sodom and Gomorrah where it said the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. Lot's wife looked back behind him and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward the land of the plain. And he saw... Behold, the smoke of the land which went up like a, the smoke of a furnace. The entire land burning completely. Everybody destroyed, including Lot's wife who turned to a pillar of salt. And, and God saying, unless I had left a seed. You who would look at yourselves as we have everything together because we've We have the prophets, and we have the law, and we have all of these things. He says, unless I had left a seed, you would have been just like Sodom and Gomorrah. The same outcome would have gone exactly towards you. There's implications of this for us, because I know that there are those that that come to church because their family comes to church. They they think that they're saved because they're Americans. Or they think that they're saved because they were baptized. Or they think that they're okay because they've grown up in the church. And yet there is no fruit that is coming from their lives. There's no evidence that would in any way show that you're a believer. The Bible tells us that you'll be known by your fruit. The Bible tells us things that there's many that are gonna to come to him and say, Lord, Lord. Many that would come saying, didn't we do all of these things in your name? His response is, depart from me, I never knew you. There's wheat and tares, and they're in the same place, the Bible says, they look alike. And they're in the same place. You hear God say, make your calling and make your election sure. Make sure that you're believers. And I know that within the church, there can be people who are here who think that they're okay, just like the Israelites thought that they were okay. And yet there's no fruit. There's no desire to honor Him. We, we sing songs of praise, and there's nothing in you that says, just love him. I want to sing praises to him. I want to learn from his word. I want to obey. I, I hate my sin. I want to pursue righteousness. I want to proclaim the gospel. I love the lost. I love my neighbor. I mean, If we can't love each other, how can the love of God be in us, God tells us? There needs to be fruit of repentance that is there. And it's not that it's those things that save us. Not at all. It's evidence that we've been saved. If the creator of this universe has redeemed us and purchased us and given us his Holy Spirit and and indwells us and makes us new creations in him, there will be changes that take place in our lives, he tells us, and there will be fruit that comes forward from our lives fruit that would come from repentance. And so you look at a a section like this, and God's saying it's not based on whether or not you're Jewish, or whether or not you're a church member, or whether or not you've been baptized, or whether or not you're teaching Sunday school. It's based on are you a part of the remnant? Are you a part of the seed? And you know that you are because you believe in Him and you love Him. You've been made new. As we, as we continue in our text, it says, um, what shall we say then? the transition that occurs here. What do we say then? In light of all these things as we've been looking at in Romans chapter 9, what do we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? What do we say then? That the Gentiles who are here in this room, the Gentiles that existed in Rome at this particular time, They didn't pursue righteousness. They weren't trying to obey all of the details of the law. They weren't trying to obey the Sabbath. They weren't trying to obey the commandments. They weren't going and making sacrifices. They weren't doing all the things that they were supposed to be doing. They did not pursue righteousness. Have they attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? The answer would be yes. In Romans ten four, it says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. For us as believers, it's the end of the law for righteousness. There's a righteousness that now comes that's totally separate from the law in that it is the righteousness of Christ based on Christ's fulfillment of the law. Look in Romans chapter 3, as we were studying that, it's talking about the law, and it says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may be become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And so it begins by saying, the law is there. The Jews have the law. The law is there to bring them to a place to see that their mouths are stopped. When you look and you think of, can they obey the law? Can we obey the law? We can't. We can't do it. You can't make it through this day. You can't make it through this service loving the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. You can't make it by loving your neighbor as yourself. You can't make it. And yet, God's given us the law that the whole world might be guilty before God Verse 21 says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. And So we come back to Romans 9.32. I'm sorry, to Romans 9.31. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. They also are guilty. Why? Verse 32 says, because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. Why is it that there were so many that were the Israelites that were not saved, Paul says? Because they didn't seek it by faith. They were trying to do it all by themselves. They were trying to earn it all by themselves. By the works of the law. You'll hear me frequently talk about justification by faith alone. Um, Martin Luther, in talking about that particular doctrine, he said that it's the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Um, It's a doctrine upon which the church either stands or falls. There's times where you may hear things that I say and think, That's so, it just seems so divisive to say something like that. Um, to say that somebody won't go to heaven because they're trying to just do it themselves. Uh, to say that Mormonism is not Christianity. At the time of the election, that was something that you weren't supposed to say. You weren't supposed to say that Mormonism was not Christianity. But I I say it with the full authority of God's word that Mormons do not believe in the gospel. They don't believe that Jesus is God. They don't believe that he died on the cross for their sins as the son of God became flesh fully God, fully man. They don't believe that all of our sin was placed upon Christ on the cross, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life, and it would all come by faith. They don't believe that. They believe that it's based upon works. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God, one of many, but not God himself, part of the triune God. He's totally different than the God that we serve and the God of the Bible. It's not Christianity. It's a salvation that supposedly comes, but it's all by works. It's not by faith. You'll have it be where people would like us to to put down our differences from other Others within Christianity that believe that you're saved by by works, plus faith. And the reason why we would hold so strongly to that is not the gospel. It's because you look at a section like this, just one example, and we've looked at it all through Romans, but why? why did Israel not attain the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did it not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. Christ was there, and he's the chief cornerstone. It's referred to as, he's referred to as the chief cornerstone throughout Scripture and over and over again, and they stumbled over him. They looked, and they said, I don't believe that Christ is God. I don't believe that if I believe in him alone that I can be saved. I gotta do my part. I gotta obey the law. I gotta obey all the things that I'm supposed to do. It's not by faith. And they look at Christ and the message of salvation that comes by grace alone and and, and by faith alone, and they stumbled over him. And God says they didn't seek it by faith. In verse 33, it says, as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. He knows that people are going to stumble over it. But for us who are the remnant, for us who are saved, for us who have faith, we look and we say, there is no way that I could ever get to heaven but Solely upon what Christ Jesus, my Lord and my God, did upon the cross. It's my only hope in this life. It's my only hope. It's not based upon whether I've done all of these things and, and met him halfway and did my part. It's not based upon that. It's based upon the King of kings and the Lord of lords became a man and he suffered all things and he fulfilled all righteousness and he fu- fulfilled the payment that we could never pay by taking all of the wrath of God upon Himself so that we would never have to experience it. And He gives us all of His righteousness and adopts us into His family and calls us to be His people, calls us to be His bride. He makes us new creations. He does all of it and He says that it all comes by faith, not of works, so that we could never boast, so it would never be of us. If faith is also works, it's no longer faith. If grace includes works, it's no longer grace. It's not grace anymore. As soon as we try to say, okay, I'll do my part and he does his part, and hopefully I've done enough to be saved. I can tell you as you sit here in this congregation this morning that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever looks upon Christ and says, as he looks upon Christ, and thinks upon him on the cross and says, and says, all of my sins were placed upon him, all of them. And he paid the price for all of them. When he said it's finished, it's finished. And all of his grace and his righteousness comes upon me. And I'm clothed with robes of righteousness, not my own. And the only way that I could be saved is by him. That is the clearest presentation of the gospel that I can give to you. It is all by faith. There is this movement called Evangelism Explosion, which was used and still is used, probably by many of you as well. Where where you say, if if you were to go before God and say, why should I be allowed to come? If God were to come for us, and say, why should I allow you into my into into heaven? How would you respond? And you'll hear most people say, well, I think I did. I think I lived a good life. I I went to church, read the Bible, I got baptized. You're to bring him to a place of saying, no, my only hope is that Christ paid the price for my sins. I believe in him. He rose again from the third day and he tells me I'll rise again on the third day. It's all my faith in him. We're told, whoever believes on him, in verse 33, will not be put to shame. It's the most important thing for us this morning is to hope in the gospel. It's the most important thing for us for all eternity is to hope in the gospel. He's presenting those that did not follow Christ. Christ was just a stumbling block to them. But he says whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. You think of what Revelation tells us when God's sixth bowl of judgment's coming upon the world and the people are are crying out for the rocks to fall on them and to hide them to hide them from their judge. It says the kings of the earth and great men the rich men the commanders the mighty men every slave and every free man they hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come who is able to stand I emphasize to you as we close that those are real words that will come forth in due time. I assure you by the full authority of God's word that there will be kings. There will be great men, there will be rich people. There will be commanders, there will be mighty men. There will be slaves, there will be free men. And they're going to be hiding. And when God comes to judge them, they're saying, fall on us to the rocks, to the mountains. Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of a lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. Who is able to stand? And we're told, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. That's radical. Because unless he had left us a remnant, unless he had left us a seed, we would have been just like Sodom and Gomorrah, Reverend Bible Church. You and I, we would have been just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Yet he has not done that. He has left us a remnant. And the gospel continues. And you are that remnant, and continue to proclaim the gospel because the only way that anybody will ever be able to stand is if they are clothed in robes of righteousness that are foreign to them, that are not their own, that are the very righteousness of Christ placed upon them. The only way that we could ever approach his throne boldly and spend eternity with him and to see his glory is through faith in Christ and his accomplishments for us on the cross. My prayer this morning as we began was that we would treasure him this morning as we close. The Lord could return at any time. And to think that and to think that there are those that are going to say to the rocks and the mountains, fall on us. And then to think that through faith in Christ we could have confidence because the wrath has been removed from us. And we will not be put to shame. Not because of our own deeds, but because of the very righteousness of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we treasure you. We love the gospel. We treasure you. think of that remnant and then to think that you've saved us. You took us who were not your people and you made us your people. You took us who had not attained mercy and you've given us mercy. You've shown us compassion. Your grace has been poured upon us. And in studying this chapter, it's so clear that it, it wasn't because we deserved it, but it was all as a result, the good pleasure of your will, your kindness, your goodness to us. We give you all the glory for our salvation, and we look and we thank you so much that we are, we are not going in the way of Sodom and Gomorrah. Rather, we will not be put to shame. I pray, Lord, that we as your people would, tr- would just treasure you this morning, love you. We'd find our hearts overflowing with praise towards you, your kindness towards us, your goodness towards us, your love towards us is something that we will, we will praise you both now and forevermore for. And Lord, Lord, I pray that a text like this would take anybody who's in our congregation who is yet to, to be saved, that your Holy Spirit would speak to them this morning so clearly that whoever believes in you would not perish but have everlasting life. That there's a righteousness that's not our own, but it is the very righteousness of Christ. And it all comes to us by faith in you, Lord. I pray that, that on, a, on this very morning that you would bring some to salvation. Give us hearts that love doctrines like the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And help, help us, Lord, by your grace, to stand fast in the gospel. Not compromising at all, but boldly proclaiming it throughout this week. And may you be glorified now through the praises of your people. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.